Welcome, thank you for joining again this uh, CBRL um, webinar. My name is Carol Palmer and I'm the CBRL Director in Amman. It's a great pleasure to have you with us all today. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with CBRL, um, we're an independent UK research charity and membership organisation that exists to conduct, support and promote humanities and social sciences research on the Levant or Levantine Middle East. Um, we're committed to independent academic scholarship and knowledge exchange of the region on which we focus. The CBRL is also part of the British Academy's eight or one-off the eight um, international research institutes uh, from whom we receive um, a grant to continue our operations. But we are always grateful to our members and friends whose donations enable us to support and do additional work, including offering funding opportunities to scholars. Um, just a little bit about the British um, International Research Institutes. Um, we're mainly based in, um, in, the, in Europe, but also in um, Africa and in some Middle Eastern countries. We're actually, CBRL actually is the third oldest of the Biris. Uh, we were founded, our origin as the British School of Archaeology in 1919. We currently have an office in London and two institutes in the region. The, what's now often referred to as the Kenyan Institute in East Jerusalem, which is for about 20 years, the, net, the new name of the British School of Archaeology, and an institute in Amman, which was founded after 1967 in the 1970s. Both institutes um, operate as hubs for our community of scholars. We're working in the Levant and UK and globally. Um, in normal times, we organize a regular program of lectures in the UK and at our institutes. And we're very pleased uh, to be able to bring you new versions of our events online um, at this time, a tradition that we hope will, will continue uh, long into the future as well. We've been very pleased by the number of people who've been able to join us from around the world. I should say that, as I noticed, we were founded in 1919, so that is right at the beginning of the British Mandate, which is the subject of our lecture um, today. Um, and in uh, 2017, we held a number of events both in Jerusalem and in the UK about the Balfour Declaration. Those of you who are familiar with the, with the region will, will, will very much know the, about the Balfour Declaration. And last year in 2019, um, we also held a series of events in London. And I'm pleased to say that through those events, we, we got to know our two speakers today. Uh, Stephen Wagner was uh, present in Jerusalem at one of the no, Balfour events. Okay. Uh, uh, oh, yes, yeah. Yes, okay. <laughs> I thought I saw you in that video. And also and Andrew Patrick, um, who's our discussant, our chair today, 
uh, gave um, lectures and events around the King Crane Commission um, last May. Um, and I should say, and we can follow this up with our, uh, after the, the, all those events are available either as podcasts or as videos, um, if you want to look into those events. Um, and we're very aware as an organization and as a British based organization of the, of the role uh, that Britain has played in the region, which is very familiar, of course, to anyone based in the Levant, uh, but I'm, I'm sorry to say often not so familiar to those outside. And so we see these events that we're holding now and today's event as part of um, also um, a self-exploration as well. And to, there's a lot of very good scholarship now on the mandate period. Events that we have held um, to this point have been very much around the end of the First World War and going into um, what happened with the peace and afterwards. But with this event, we're very much jumping into the first 20 years of the, of the, uh, of the mandate itself. Um, I think now I should move on um, to uh, introduce our speakers and just give you some housekeeping rules on what will be happening today. Our speaker, Stephen Wagner, is a lecturer in international security at Brunel University, London. His book, Statecraft by Stealth, Secret Intelligence and British Rule in Palestine, published by Cornell University Press last year, um, examines the relationship between intelligence policy and armed, armed conflict in mandatory Palestine. He's He's going to say much more about it, so I will, I will stop there. Um, he is the recipient um, of a CBRL centenary grant and has been working on um, Hajj Amin al-Husseini. And there's um, a short report on his work there in the CBRL bulletin that's also now available online. And this is a research line that he is continuing. Um, Andrew Patrick, who is our chair and going to be our discussant, is an associate professor of history at Tennessee State University in Nashville, Tennessee, in the USA. His research focuses on American involvement in the Middle East, particularly during the World War I era. And um, his publications include the book, um, America's Forgotten Middle East Initiative, the King Crane Commission of 1919, published by I.B. Taurus in 2015. Um, and his articles have also appeared in Middle East Studies, First World War Studies, and the Jerusalem Quarterly as well. His PhD he, he received from Manchester, and he's also taught in Turkey and Abu Dhabi as well. And he's also been the recipient of CBRL funding in the past. So, so both, um, to both of you, thank you very much for uh, being willing to talk today and to discuss um, this issue. How we've agreed the proceedings will follow is that uh, Stephen will present a talk for about 20 minutes, um, sort of outlining his book and the key issues. And then um, for about another 20 minutes, um, Andrew will, um, will ask some questions and explore the book 
Um, and then it's uh, your chance, our, our attendees, those in the Zoom room using the Q&A can, um, can, put, can put in questions. So thank you very much. Great. Thank you, everyone, for uh, coming. Thank you, Cal, for that introduction. And, and to um, uh, Maggie and the CBRL as well for, uh, for sort of the grant support, but also for organizing this. I'm going to share my presentation with you now. Uh, so that should come up clearly. And uh, let's begin. What I really love about studying intelligence history is the ways in which it can change our understanding. So you can learn about intelligence because it's new and there's declassification and it helps us really understand topics in a new way, but it also helps us understand decisions that were made, operations, et cetera, even if they're based on correct information or whether, uh, or trying to understand why people get it wrong. It's super interesting to me. Um, but I think the most significant thing is it really, in this case, helps us understand not just intelligence as a tool of administration, but the evidence produced by these previously unseen records actually sheds new light on the story of the early years of the Arab Zionist conflict and mandatory Palestine. So what I'm gonna do is cover uh, a number of uh, key areas from the book, uh, survey them, and, and we will um, move on to discussion from there. I realize not all of you may be intelligence experts and likewise some of you may come from that field and uh, may know very little about the Palestine mandate. So I'm going to frame the discussion with a bit of background now. Um, what is intelligence? I define it very broadly in the book and also in general. Even when I'm teaching, I kind of frame it as intelligence is about keeping secrets and it's about stealing secrets. Those are the two basic tasks, no matter how you wanna um, uh, characterize it, that covers about everything. Um, I also use the term to refer to the institutions that do analysis. I refer to analysis as part of intelligence and of course, secrets themselves. Um, one thing I wanna point out, and this is referring to the images here, is that Israel, the state of Israel's bit unique, actually Russia does this too a bit, in that they tend, unlike say Britain, to commemorate their spies in a big way. And this is one of the levers of power that they use, is actually by, instead of keeping things secret forever and ever, they uh, like to expose and shed light on some of their triumphs. So this postage stamp is of Sarah Aronson and the photo and the street signer of Angela Levy Bianchini, in both of whom I write about in the book. Um, now let's move on to colonial intelligence. Here's an area where things get a bit different than the rest of intelligence studies. Um, I think the main difference is colonial security plays, has a much bigger emphasis on censorship and propaganda than a security service might do in the metropole. Not that it doesn't exist there, it's just not as important. Um, it's also worth pointing out that intelligence staff are actually running the government right up until 1928. So the people who conquer the country, the Allen B's intelligence staff uh, in 1917, all take on these administrative posts in the military administration. Uh, when the civilian administration comes, they don't change their jobs, they just change their clothes. Um, so that really helps us understand some of those early years. 
Um, on top of that, you have Zionist intelligence cooperation underpinning Anglo-Zionist relations. And that's an important thing which I'll elaborate on in a second. But uh, another example that I might use to illustrate the importance of this kind of uh, cooperation uh, sorry, the, the importance of censorship and propaganda would be a subject in which um, our discussant, Andrew, is actually the world expert on. That's the King Crane Commission. In the, during 1919, during the Paris peace talks, a commission was sent to Palestine to check whether this mandate system was going to work out, whether the people actually wanted the British to come rule the country. Um, and one of the things that the intelligence staff do is really crack down on nationalist expressions. They take away the Palestinian flags from meetings, they shut down clubs, they suppress publications, they work very, very hard to uh, uh, make sure everything appears like not just that the British are welcome, but that they're needed. So they even emphasize areas where uh, Palestinians disagree uh, and where they maybe they're disagreeing violently. Um, and there's many other things going on at the time, of course, but it works out. Um, a little bit more on mandatory Palestine. Everyone, I hope, should be familiar with Britain's three famous contradictory promises in the First World War to Arabs, to Britain's allies, especially France, and to the Zionists. Um, what I want to focus on, though, is actually the terms of the British mandate. The mandate has two uh, contradictory goals as a result of these promises. Um, all League of Nations mandates uh, require the mandatory power, in this case Britain, to prepare the country for independence, democratic government and independence. Um, that's goal number one. But the contradictory one, and I'll explain why it's contradictory, is that they have to implement the Balfour Declaration of 1917, that is, to establish in Palestine a national home for the Jewish people, um, whatever that means. Now, by 1922, when the mandate takes legal effect, this is interpreted to mean to allow as much Jewish immigration as the country can absorb, and the Zionists actually get to define the data that, that determines absorptive capacity. And privately, many states may actually agree that the goal is to set up a Jewish majority and eventually a Jewish state. Um, they are, tend to be reluctant to admit that publicly. Uh, and also, they don't all agree on that goal. And many of them don't really understand Zionism's goals, by the way. Um, now, here's the contradiction. The Palestinian majority reject goal number two because, rightly, they feel like they're going to end up displaced in their own homes. Um, this is a very rational response, if you ask me. Now, the British, in trying to fulfill goal number one, start to propose legislative councils, even parliaments that might be established in order to meet some of these League of Nations aims, these democratic self-government kind of institutions. The Palestinians won't participate in that because the British refuse to give these proposed bodies any control over immigration policy. So the British won't give democracy without a Zionist caveat, which means that the, they're, they're unable to fulfill goal number one, and this is something that's frequently used against them in the League of Nations uh, Permanent Mandates Commission. All right. Um, oh, by the way, one thing that's very helpful to the British is that they're able to prolong negotiations. They look at communications between Palestinians 
Palestinians. Pictured here is the Palestinian delegation to London in 1921. They go there to communicate directly with the colonial secretary, Winston Churchill, after um, he ignores them during his own visit to the Middle East. And between them and their British supporters, so on the top right is Margaret Farquharson, uh, who's part of a group of women, conservative ex-suffragettes who support the Palestinian case against the Zionist policy. And by reading their communications, they understand that actually we can produce more peace on the ground if we just let this go on. If we let them believe negotiations might lead to something, um, we're gonna uh, enjoy more peace. It's an improvisation tactic, but actually this is the most they can get away with and it, it works in the short run. I think it adds to everyone's frustration in the long run. The general arc of the mandate. The British think they can balance all these contradictory commitments, but they can't, and the Palestinians resist in a variety of ways, not just violently. Um, however, it's those violent disturbances which get British attention, and after each one, they, there's some kind of recommendation to curb the Zionist policy, but this is either not adopted or backtracked. Um, this is until the Palestinian revolt, which breaks out uh, the first time in 1936. It's renewed again the next year. Every attempt the British try to create a liberal civilian state and a police force uh, are disrupted by the revolt. And that they come, they, they take these commitments very seriously, seeing them as, you know, the expansion of uh, indigenous civil service uh, and expansion of Palestinian police. But this is all disrupted by the revolt. So the answer to the deadlock by 1937 is partition. They're going to create a Jewish state. Um, they're going to shrink the mandate to the Jerusalem Jaffa corridor, and they're going to annex uh, the rest of the country to Transjordan. Obviously, this makes no one happy. Uh, the revolt renews, and uh, the next year it coincides with the Munich crisis. Now, two divisions, 20,000 troops are tied down in Palestine when they're actually possibly needed to fight Germany in Europe. Um, so the British start to change their minds about the wisdom of the Zionist policy. Um, and by 1939, with the white paper, which I'll speak about at the end, they finally give up on that uh, policy. So let's talk about some of the spies, the fun stuff. Meet Joseph Davidescu, one of the most interesting characters I've come across in my research. Um, I opened the book with a story of his career and his assassination in 1945. He's interesting to me because he's one. he seems like a wild man to me. He's, he represents one of the core elements of the story of Anglo-Zionist intelligence cooperation and its limits. Um, this cooperation, of course, underpins this quid pro, quo, quid pro quo. The Zionist intelligence supports British uh, security and their power and their interest, and in exchange, the British support the Zionist policy, seeing also that it's part of their own interest. Davidescu is exceptional. He distrusts the Zionist institutions and their leaders. He uh, is very much his own man. He's born to a family of refugees, uh, but grew up in a more Zionistic environment than what they had arrived to. Um, he basically, among other things, was a professional smuggler, um, using a livestock business as cover to travel across all these newly created borders. Um, 
and he was very, very helpful to British intelligence. So he was busted by the French police in Lebanon for snuggling arms in 1929. And upon his release the next year, he was recruited into the British security service where he remained until his death. Now, um, he's often portrayed in Hebrew as a kind of double agent passing information also about the British to the Zionists. I'd rather characterize him as an independent trying to look out for his own community and, and, and what he sees as, as its interests. Um, but you can see also how good he was as, uh, as a spy. This photo on the top right is uh, another angle of a much more famous photo of the Palestinian rebel leadership in 1936. So second on the left is Fawzi al-Kawukji, who led a volunteer army of 300, uh, which tied down two British divisions in Palestine in the summer of 1936. Next to him is Fakhri Abdul Hadi, who um, worked with the rebels in 1936. And two years later, British intelligence managed to turn him against them. And they created all this uh, psychological uh, damage and by turning Palestinians against Palestinians, sowing discord in the ranks. And I'll talk more about that ahead. Um, so you can see that how close he got to uh, what was seen by him and his employers as the enemy camp. Um, but his death, he was assassinated by the Stern gang and most people in uh, his hometown actually believe it's uh, future prime minister Yitzhak Shamir was the one who pulled the trigger. Shamir never really admitted that, but he also always defended the assassination. To me, his life and death represent the story of Anglo-Zionist intelligence cooperation. First, it matters. It's core to British power and British security, their access to all this kind of information. But eventually, once there's a break in Anglo-Zionist relations, suddenly, when your job in security is to turn in Jewish terrorists, you, this position you've been maintaining is untenable, um, as are Anglo-Zionist relations, as the other side, right? The, the Jewish community of Palestine turns to revolt. The other big character I want to talk about is Hajamin al-Husseini, a fascinating person, probably the most important Palestinian leader of this period. Um, um, and as, as you heard, I'm working on a new project based on his World War II era papers. But the main question from an intelligence point of view is, is this guy, from the British point of view, a friend or foe? Do we trust him? Is he working with us and according to our interests or actually is he working against our interests secretly? And you see these debates, which also play out in historiography. Historians debate this issue and so did the intelligence services. So the police were sure he was cooperative and the military intelligence was sure he was secretly supporting the rebels. Uh, and, and the radical nationalists. Um, his, the extent to which he influenced or even led the revolt in its early phases is also up for debate. And these are all issues I talk about in the book. Um, but as a piece of intelligence history, he's very puzzling and very interesting. And I took a pretty firm position in the book um, using as, all the evidence I could dig up on him uh, about his, his relationship with the radical youth uh, with uh, kind of more violent streams of nationalism, his tendency to assassinate his opponents, his Palestinian opponents, that is, and uh, of course, his emphasis on um, security, secrecy, uh, and, and actually there's a lot more to say about his, his own intelligence work. 
Um, but the big kind of headline issue in the book that I deal with, uh, of course, is the revolt. Pictured on the top there is Dudley Clark. Now, he may not be famous to you if you're not a military historian, but those of us who are would recognize him as being the guy who first figured out how to deceive the Germans during the Second World War. Highly decorated by both the British and actually the Americans gave him uh, a medal as well uh, for that kind of work. But he's also central to the planning the counter-revolt in Palestine. He is the one coordinating intelligence with operations. So always for the historians out there, always check the files named miscellaneous because I found the best stuff and it's all about him there. All these planning and staff papers and intelligence reports, all with his uh, signature at the bottom. And um, you can see uh, how influential he was in shaping the counter-revolt. He authorized plans to sow discord in the rebel camp. He, um, he is the one who, with Davidescu actually, who organized the flipping of Fakhri Abdul Hadi. He is also um, helped organize the construction of roads, fences, fortifications throughout the country, which we could talk about in Q&A, which totally transformed the country. Um, uh, he and helped bring the army to the, Palestine, the Palestinian hinterland help uh, reinforce the system of detention and internment uh, without habeas corpus, of course, which helped cleave the rebels away from the civilian population. Very brutal, very effective, um, uh, not very nice, and definitely changed the way I saw this guy. We were, like when I first learned about him in like military history seminars, uh, it seems you know, interesting and dynamic and heroic even. And um, this study has really definitely uh, affected the way I view his and other cases. And now probably the biggest uh, revision I offer in the book to uh, the typical narrative of, of mandatory Palestine is that of the origins of the 1939 white paper policy. The so let's quickly cover what it was. The white paper is issued in May 1939. Um, it restricts Jewish immigration to about 1,500 a month. The British, as I mentioned, decide we can't do this dual commitment anymore. Let's say the Balfour Declaration has been fulfilled. There is a Jewish national home. We don't have to allow any more Jews in mass numbers. Bad timing, by the way, from the Jewish point of view, for the Zionist one. So they restrict immigration for to 1,500 a month for five years. And this policy is going to be handed to a new single federal state of Palestine and its government. Um, and there's a timetable to full de jure independence as well within 10 years. Now, how is this possible? It's because of British access to Saudi and other Arab state communications. This really helps us understand the, uh, this big change of policy. And when you compare intercepted communications with the policy papers, you suddenly see why minds are changing. So this is an example of one I've posted here on the right. You can see a very helpful headline, a serial number. You see the date that the document was prepared. You see within the document a kind of summary of, of the, uh, in English, of, of the Arabic uh, wireless uh, telegram that was sent. And you can see also how we, that, unlike other ones which were translated and prepared in Palestine, this was sent back to London for translation. So they're bringing in extra help on this issue. 
Um, so you learn a lot about kind of how priorities work, right? When you look at the turnaround time between October 2nd and October 6th, 1936, you, you have a message prepared. It's relatively quick for that period. Normally, turnaround is about two weeks for Arabic material. On the bottom left, you see everyone who got a copy of this. Also very helpful in proving actually where this shows influence and where it may not. So what is Ibn Saud, the founding king of Saudi Arabia, Abdulaziz Ibn Saud, what does he have to do with the Palestine problem? So he first really starts to matter during the 1936, the first phase of the revolt, when he is asked by the British to help end it by, he personally calls on the Mufti of Jerusalem to bring an end to the general strike and the revolt. Um, his opinion on Palestine matters to the British because he's influential, that incident proves he's influential. When the partition plan comes out, he's really angry that his more powerful neighbor to the north at the time, he, Abdullah was more powerful, uh, is gonna be strengthened even further by this annexation. Um, but above all, the British know he's trustworthy, that he doesn't lie to them, that he'll follow up on the things he says he's gonna do. And that's because they're reading his messages. Um, so the British decide that they're going to hold a conference in early 1939. Who do they invite? They invite the Zionists as usual, but now they also invite the independent Arab states, including Saudi Arabia. They allow an informal Palestinian delegation to come. The Mufti is excluded at the Saudi requests. They ask the king of Saudi Arabia, should he come? He says, no, they don't, he doesn't like him. Um, now they're reading all the delegation's communications. The British therefore can pull the strings from behind the scenes. They ask when the conference inevitably fails, right? They're not gonna, Zionists and Arabs are not gonna agree on a solution. They expect this. They ask the Saudis to come up with a solution on their own with the other Arab states, excluding the Zionists. So they come up with, a several, with several drafts. The Palestinians won't agree with it because it doesn't guarantee the amnesty for the Mufti who's been held responsible for leading the revolt. It won't guarantee him or his comrades specific jobs. The Saudi king threatens the Palestinians, says, if you don't accept this draft, uh, then I can't help you vis-a-vis -vis the British. And that's kind of the end of the story from that point of view. Uh, the British are reading all of this, and that means they know that there's no point waiting for the Palestinians to accept. And therefore, they pull the plug, they use the latest Saudi draft, and boom, a huge change in policy, a huge, huge watershed. Um, so this has a big impact, of course, on by producing a, an Anglo-Zionist conflict, right? But it also secures uh, some British interests. What they want is a benevolent neutral. They know there's going to be a new war in Europe, that there's going to be a, war, a world war, and they want uh, Saudi Arabia. They see Saudi Arabia and Turkey as the two reliable Middle Eastern benevolent neutrals, right, partners. Um, they also get his influence in the pan-Arab movement for what it's worth. And of course, Ibn Saud gets all the prestige of securing the first concession on Zionism from the British, and it costs him about nothing. And with that, I'm gonna hand over to Andrew, uh, and we'll begin our discussion. Um, and I uh, thank you again all for, for your attention and for, uh, for hanging in there with me. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much, Dr. Wagner, um, and of course, thanks to CBRL, um, and specifically, specifically to Maggie McNulty and Carol Palmer for having me back at a 
CBRL event and uh, for the uh, funding once upon a time in my, the early days of uh, my uh, PhD. Uh, and so congratulations on the book, Dr. <coughs> Wagner. It's, uh, I think uh, one of the book's main strengths is the dispassionate and thorough nature of its analysis. The conclusions you come to are rooted firmly in the sources and they show no pre-existing notions about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which you know, so many books on the topic sometimes do. Uh, I think Dr. Wagner clearly shows uh, that at least where intelligence was, was concerned, the British and the Zionists were in a symbiotic relationship uh, in Mandate Palestine, leaving the Palestinians at a major disadvantage. Uh, I think it's essential reading for scholars of Mandate Palestine. Um, but also for anyone hoping to gain new insight into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the, and the origins of it. Um, okay, to the questions, which I have written out here. Uh, the first question um, goes back to sort of the beginning of, of the book, and a major revisionist claim you make is uh, that um, British intelligence officers did not see the contradictions in their wartime agreements until later in 1919, um, and you've mentioned these agreements. Uh, it is true, you know, as you note, that these were all poorly thought through acts of desperation designed to win a war. Uh, yet prominent Brits like Lord Curzon, Edward Montague, Gertrude Bell, and others were arguing in 1917 that the Balfour Declaration was unworkable and would be resisted. Uh, Gilbert Clayton, head of intelligence in Egypt, uh, doubted the wisdom of it, but was convinced um, later by Chaim Weizmann. Uh, and in June of 1919, when the Kinker Crane Commission shows up, one of the first things the British troops say to them is that this is going, Zionist policy is going to be resisted. Um, now, I know you argue in the book that British intelligence was very immature in these early days, um, but it would seem that an intelligence official would need to be exceedingly obtuse not to understand the problems that Zionism would cause in Palestine. Uh, so. How, my question to you for this is how could uh, the British uh, officials have not comprehended this right away? Sure. So first of all, some people were obtuse about it. Um, <laughs> um, to her credit, uh, Gertrude Bell is really the only voice in the intelligence circles anyway to like stick to her guns on, on opposition to the Zionist policy. When people are willing to accept it, it's often because they're not sure what this actually means as a commitment and what, and most of them are easily reassured by Weizmann himself. Um, but what, what I mean and what I'm trying to do in the book, uh, and maybe this will be helpful if I show uh, illustrative map, um, is the British see it first and foremost when it's issued. Afterwards, things change very rapidly, right? <laughs> uh, but when it's issued, they see it as a wartime instrument. This is a kind of, not just an act of desperation, but an act of desperation by the side that's sure it's about to lose the war. So this map is uh, what I, I, I have a version of this in the book, but the, the color version's uh, a lot better. Um, it's based on German data, by the way, but it's meant to kind of, this was the, Allies answer to Wilson's peace overtures in 1916. And what they're basically saying is, until all these minority groups are free to, to run their own affairs, have their self-determination, the, the, the conflict won't be over, even if we agree to a temporary peace deal. The other piece of context that's important to keep in mind is everyone expects all the belligerent powers are gonna survive the war. 
Now, by the time the Balfour Declaration is issued, it's pretty clear Russia's out, and that actually helps spur things along uh, on, with the Zionist policy. But um, the once within a year, once you the German Empire no longer exists, the Russian Empire no longer exists, Austria-Hungary no longer exists, exists, Ottoman Empire shrunk into a former shell, a shell of its former self, right? Um, suddenly you don't the, you the these bargaining chips with small nations that you've been trying to accrue with this kind of propaganda now you have to answer to them and you don't have to answer to the people you were fighting for four years so when when i say that uh the intelligence officers don't really get the contradiction it's because it's really not until the end of the war those last hundred days that they start to see that oh, we're, we're going to have to sort this out with the Zionists. We're going to have to sort this out with the Arabs. We actually have to figure out what they mean by all this. Um, and that's when you see, so you're right, by summer 1919, actually, the intelligence staff have a pretty good idea of what it's going to take, and that's a lot of force uh, to, to enforce the Zionist policy. T.E. Lawrence himself, by the way, says to the government within, I think, two years later, if you can't find a constitutional solution, you better just arm the Jews because that's what, that's what it's going to take. Yeah, it's interesting because I often feel like, like what more is there to say about these wartime agreements, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, your book managed to say something more about these wartime agreements and, and something different, <laughs> which I appreciate it. Um, uh, let's see, we could talk a little more about the Arab revolt, I think, which, I, which is, as you said, a real major focus of the book. Um, and I think you explain this revolt very well um, and in your complex telling. Um, it seems like we could view this as an early Zionist-Palestinian battle or a revolution, as some of them did view it as, as some Palestinians did view it as an insurrection, a Palestinian civil war, which is maybe um, not out there as, as much as, at least in the more cursory cover, coverage and history books of the, the revolt, that you miss these peace bands and these Palestinians who are trying to defend their villages from other Palestinian rebels. Um, but also, you bring in, and you talked about this with Ibn Saud a little bit, that um, it was a major event that shaped the international relations of the Middle East's fledgling countries, you know, Iraq and, and Jordan and in, in Saudi Arabia were all playing a role here, or at least attempting to play a role. Um, so, and, and you talk about this a bit, uh, you've talked about intelligence a little bit, but there's also elements of colonial policing um, that you discuss in the book too. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's some pretty harsh policing going on in the United States right now. Um, so is there, is there any sort of line to be drawn um, between the two? Yeah, actually, and I can include a kind of personal anecdote, but basically about a little more than 10 years ago, I first started to look at all these colonial policing records from Palestine. So around 1930, the big reforms are brought in. They want to civilianize the police. They'd been kind of based on uh, Irish and Darmories, and they, they wanted to recruit more Palestinians and more Jews. They wanted uh, to have more educated detectives and fewer illiterate constables, their words. Um, they wanted uh, smart police. They wanted what we today call community policing. Um, 
they thought this would be one of these elements of, of uh, kind of liberal democratic life and, and that goal number one of the mandate. Because and during the revolt, because of and during the revolt, the police collapse and um, the army kind of takes control of the police and militarizes it. And what you see are very explicit discussions. We need more illiterate constables, their words. We need, um, we need, uh, so dumb, brutish kind of types, right? We need to give them rifles. They should not wear blue anymore in the field. They should be wearing tan, like military colors. They should, uh, or khaki. They, they, they should be part of our show of force. So I'm reading this at the time that my police, uh, my hometown police right, in Calgary had just switched to from blue squad cars to black with much more intimidating appearances, again, seeing more heavy arms. Obviously all those reports about uh, police forces in, the, in America buying uh, military surplus uh, were coming out at the time. And I'm thinking, is this the purpose of police? Like, I'm sorry, what, what goal is this serving? Are they here to intimidate us? So this helped me understand not just a contemporary idea about militarized policing, but also uh, the importance of decolonization in general. I mean, the fact that this is happening in North America, to me, is part of the colonial inheritance. This is a natural result of the kinds of countries I used to live in. Uh, and, 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 and which you still do. Um, and it's really not until then that I understood what that movement was about, um, uh, to my shame, I guess. But um, the, uh, then comparing that against some of the other records, like uh, Israel has the same legacy. The, the Israeli border police uh, shoulder patch logo is of a Tegert fortress. So, I mean, it, it is inherently any border, any frontier force is inherently a colonial force. So they also have this kind of colonial inheritance. Um, what does it have to do with intelligence? I mean, everything is those are the staff that are making these decisions, actually. Um, so again, like it, it really gives me a great pause wondering why we have to police ourselves in this way. Why? We can't follow this kind of unarmed, I'm not saying the British police are perfect, far from it, but like starting with unarmed street constables sounds like a good idea generally, you know? Yeah, um, interesting. Um, all right, I wanna get in a, a couple more questions here and then we can go to audience questions, but uh, you talked about the white paper uh, of 1939 and um, I think you make a very interesting point about it that didn't come out in your, in your presentation uh, and, and you argue in the book that, um, of course, Zionists saw this as a betrayal. And you know, this is a, a, a very uh, um, understandable reaction. But you argue, though, that in one sense, the white paper of 1939 was a gift to the Zionists. Uh, could you explain this uh, apparent contradiction to the audience? So I agonized over that line because I knew what it implied. Um, and is actually suggested to me by um, a friend, uh, by John Ferris, and it took me forever to just include it because he was right. Um, now, what I don't mean 
I don't mean that the white paper and, and the Jewish lives that it cost were a fair price for Israeli independence. That is not at all what I mean there. Um, what I am saying, though, is that without it, there'd be no discovery, no realization on the Zionist side, they might be ready to fight for those things. They might actually have the, the stately instruments of power uh, that they're inheriting from the British and might be able to use them against them. And that's my point, is that Ben-Gurion decides around 1941-42 that statehood as soon as possible is the way to go. Um, and actually, I don't it's counterfactual, but I don't think he could have come to this conclusion unless he'd been left on his own, unless the Zionists had been left on their own at that moment. Uh, but with all this experience they got from 20 years of working very closely with the British. Yeah, was sort of following on from that too, another thing that you brought out in the book that um, didn't come out in your talk, and I think is a major research finding was that, so the British built all these fortifications uh, yeah. Uh, around the time of the revolt and all this security infrastructure and such, uh, and um, and it that helped them to put down the revolt. Mm -hmm. um, but you also argue that uh, it helped the Zionist slash Israeli forces defeat the Palestinians yeah. uh, in the 1947-1949 uh, war, um, as well as the Arabs, of course. Uh, would you would you like to expand on that for the audience? Because I think that's fascinating. Yeah, and also give you a peek at my at the original maps I used. Uh, the ones in the book are based on these. Um, so here's the one in the book. Um, you can see kind of British infrastructure built between 1937 and 43 or so, right? All the fortresses uh, converted frontier posts. So they're all like these big towers and big block buildings and, uh, and the roads that were built. Now the first phase of the of the 1947-48, like the civil war phase uh, of that war, is uh, often referred to as the War of the Road, especially in Israeli historiography. You could easily call it the War of the Tegerts. Now, if you look at where the major clashes are taking place, it's all over this relatively freshly built British infrastructure. And when I first saw it, I, in my mind, realizing, oh my goodness, this basically predestined the course of the of the first Arab-Israeli war and that's what they're fighting over are those choke points those hard points uh, and the Israelis largely speaking get most of them in their partition in 1947 um, and they fight for the ones that they don't get and often they're successful there's two big exceptions of course famously Latrun less famously in Tulkarm um, uh, but you can see some of the original maps. So here's an example of like the state of construction at the peak of the rebellion. Um, you can see the kind of deployment of British forces across the country and the reason why they decide to build all these new roads. So they can't really access some of the hillier areas, say uh, southeast of Haifa or near Janine, uh, Nablus, etc., or certainly in the north. So this was kind of their answer, was just to throw money and concrete at it and, um, and asphalt. And uh, uh, it worked out for the army, it worked out for the Israelis, and it totally scarred the landscape and, and devastated Palestinian chances of, of any uh, military defense, if you ask me. 
Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to uh, maybe some questions uh, that are coming in from the audience. Um, and we'll start with uh, one from uh, Sarah Irving. Um, and uh, the question is this, you referred to Haj Amin al-Husseini's uh, tendency to assassinate uh, Palestinian political opponents. Do we have a sense of how many people he actually had assassinated and who carried out the killings for him? Right. So thank you. Uh, it's a very helpful question. This is something I'm still working on, and it's also something I address in the book, although I can be more elaborate here. Um, so his cousin, Confidant and kind of right-hand man, Jamal, af like long after these events, admitted that they probably were behind about 40 assassinations that he could think of. Some Israeli historians put it up in the thousands. Uh, others like Hillel Cohen said it's probably under a thousand. And it really, uh, um, Charles Anderson uh, and in his dissertation actually really unpacks this and, and it's very reliable uh, research. Um, and it's, I, I find it helpful in the sense that you can, you have to parse like the moments where he says, kill this guy and then someone goes and does it versus ones where kind of the things he says uh, either through incitement or hints or even just not using the usual channels kind of indicates to his devotees who needs a threatening letter, who needs to go. So they have a lot of autonomy and during the revolt, actually there's groups doing this, they don't need central authority to kill each other. Um, so very gruesome, obviously. Um, so my inclination now is to go with the low numbers, right, in the, in the dozens, because if his right-hand man says so, it's good enough for me. It's enough murders to still see someone is, is, is a pretty bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's without his wartime record. Um, now, how does he do it? There's different means. He has, he refers to a kind of loosely organized apparatus himself, around himself uh, called al-wafa, right, like the loyalty. And at different times, his followers used different names for this, including the Black Hand. Isidina um, uh, Qassam's followers go with the Green Hand. Qassam um, is an employee of one of the national bodies that Ajamin controls. So the links are all there. Does it, does it prove that he says, Kassam, have this guy killed? Sure, thing boss. And then he goes and sends someone. No, but it, you have to kind of look, in my view, it's important to look at the net picture and the broad patterns of how this all works. And the other thing that's coming out uh, is um, his use of Pan-Islamic Congress money, which the British could not, had no say over. And his, he used it to employ more staff at the Haram al-Sharif, especially bodyguards. So looking through his ledgers, looking through SMC ledgers, you can see people listed as bodyguards and often assume, and especially if they work under certain people who I know organized assassinations, um, you can safely assume that they're part of this apparatus actually. So, so is going on. And by the way, uh, before he passed away last year, Sami Hamoudi was uh, working on this very question. And I'm not sure what his family intends to do with the research, um, but um, it's a very interesting problem. Yeah. 
right. Uh, yeah, well, there's a question that sort of uh, uh, follows on from that, and this is from uh, uh, Roberto Mazza, uh, who we know well. Hi, Roberto. Uh, uh, it says, uh, he writes, uh, first Ottoman intelligence, then British Zionists, and lastly Israeli. It seems the Palestinians were never able to create their own apparatus. Is this a fair statement? And secondly, do you see continuities in the policing implanted in Palestine from Ottoman times? And if so, uh, how does this impact the Palestinians in Palestine? So in the first point, I have more to say, but basically you have two problems here. One is the lack of central uh, bureaucratic Palestinian archive, right? The archives are plundered, dispersed, destroyed. Um, and it's very hard to build this kind of picture for that side of the story. And I hope research figures this out, uh, certainly in, during my career. Um, and, and I will do my best to, to help. Um, but putting the picture together as best we can. So you have, on the one hand, you have Ajamin's security apparatus, which I mentioned. The other, I have actually, and I'm working now, thanks to grant money from CBRL, I'm working on uh, um, a new article about this forgery incident from 1935 that actually shows a pretty elaborate system of, of espionage with the, uh, among the Palestinians. Uh, they're able to, so Shakib Arslan, who's not Palestinian, but uh, he's a prominent pan-Islamist, is able to name the head of British intelligence who is trying to slander him. So he knows him by name. So what does that say? The guy whose job is it to keep, keep and steal secrets actually has this very fundamental thing out there about him. Uh, and he had to have gotten that somehow, right? The other one is uh, you can see Palestinian opposition parties, right? The Nashashibi parties, they're able to go and steal letters and copy them or like remember the gist of it. And um, they, they do this kind of activity as well. Uh, remind me of the second part of the question. Asks, um, do you see continuities uh, between the policing implanted in Palestine from Ottoman times? So there's a tendency in historiography to remark about how uh, both Palestinians and Zionists referred to the effectiveness of brutal Ottoman policing. And my, I don't know enough about it, but my sense is it's probably mostly rubbish. Um, that actually there was a kind of effective justice system most of the time. And that the idea that some kind of, uh, you know, thugs on horseback could go knock some heads together and make it all work mm. is probably ridiculous. But um, I'm willing to be proven wrong, but. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, a few more questions from the audience or some a bunch coming in. Uh, Penelope Quinton asks, uh, did you find anything surprising from the usual narrative role of Philby in the mandatory uh, and Ibn Saud, Ibn Saud relations? Did you find anything surprising from the, uh, or sorry, that was a repeat. That's the question. <laughs> uh, so on Sinjin Philby, so very interesting person, obviously the father of the famous Soviet mole, Kim Philby, um, strange family. Anyway, um, the Philby's deeply involved in some of these negotiations in the twenties, the ones that kind of like help keep the peace, but are not that sincere from the British point of view. But he is interested in, again, in propping up Ibn Saud and, and his kind of regional leadership. Now, it's important when I say that to remember that the Hashemites were not the obvious candidates for leading a kind of pan-Arab federation. Even before the war, the Saudis were seen as 
the likely candidate uh, in, in the Ottoman context, right? Their military victories and, and their, uh, not just against the Ottomans, but against their kind of local hereditary opponents um, were held up as, as kind of a promise of uh, kind of new order coming out of the peninsula. So for people who supported the idea of a, maybe a dual kingdom, right? Arab-Turkish kingdom, this was very promising at the time. Um, and Philby, still kind of favoring British interests, actually thought it was a good idea to run with that. So, all right. Um, let's see another question here, and uh, this is from uh, Julio Moreno. Uh, you mentioned that the mandates uh, was mandate was ruled by intelligence until 1928, when the police were reformed, or a bit later, civilianized. Uh, what is the relationship between intelligence and police, uh, British, Arabic, and Jewish, Jewish section uh, from that moment on? <laughs> so the police are kind of, uh, they're understaffed, skeleton structure, 1928-29, this big, dis um, it's an, a revolt. Actually, Palestinian historiography calls it the Barak Revolt, and I think we all uh, stop using the colonial language of disturbances and actually treat the intentions seriously. Um, but the um, uh, the relationship between intelligence and police until then depends on the topic. So the police are leading the charge against communist invasion in the early 20s, and they work very effectively with Zionists at eliminating communist, like Bolshevik communist penetration. Uh, they deport the people who they legally can, they blacklist the others um, in this context of the Red Scare. So Zionists proved them, their partnership in other topics pretty early on. Uh, afterwards, the relationship between police, intelligence, police and intelligence is kind of dodgy. So, of course, the police have their own intelligence service called the Criminal Investigation Department. It's not just a forensic unit, although they have those facilities. This is actually a kind of political police, right? It's a secret police. Um, um, and that's kind of part of colonial policing anywhere in the British Empire. Actually, there's some version of this wherever you go. Um, the police relationship with other intelligence services, again, depends on the topic. On the Mufti, they actually are at each other's throats. Uh, on uh, things like um, Jew, uh, Zionist arms smuggling, illegal Jewish immigration, actually, they're pretty cooperative. So it just depends. Okay. Yeah, and I would... I would uh, uh ask the, the member of the audience that that is all traced very well in the book. So this is a, another plug uh, for the book there. Um, all right, and another question here from uh, Philip Edwards. Uh, he writes, uh, British intelligence presumably had good intelligence on Abdullah um, of Jordan uh, leading up to uh, the war of 1948. And you, Abdullah is a, plays a big role in the book. Uh, what did the, the Brits know or do about the suspected arrangement of a ceasefire line uh, between Abdullah and the Zionists, and did the arrangement serve Britain's purpose? So I'm not an expert on that topic, um, and I'm not sure. And I have, it's been over a decade since I've looked at, like, very seriously anyway, at post-1945 material that doesn't have to do with the Mufti. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing I can say is until... 
And during the early years of the Second World War, the British intelligence in one form or another is this kind of his personal security service. They're pretty good at that. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Another question came in um, from uh, Taufik Haddad, who's the director of the Kenyan Institute in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, he writes that the, um, it's a two-part question. The UK came to be known as perfidious Albion, uh, <laughs> quotes, uh, for its unscrupulous duplicity in international relations and foreign policy. Your research seems to underline the moniker par excellence. Uh, <laughs> what does your research tell us about the Palestine-specific contributions to this moniker and any particular innovations they developed in this field? Thanks for the question. Um, so, it's a complicated one. Obviously, this is a label the French like to throw at the British whenever they can, um, especially de Gaulle, um, who can be a bit anglophobic at times. Um, however, do are do the does, do British policymakers behave treacherously at times? Yeah. I think the big famous incidents though, like the, the First World War stuff, actually my tendency is to say there's a lot more accident going on here than like, you know, twizzling the evil mustaches they plot to, to, to bring the Zionists to Palestine and kick out Palestinians. Uh, I think it's far more complicated a process than that. Um, but in their direct dealings with Palestinians, I think they can be duplicitous. So the big one for me is reading, reading their messages and using that information to lead them in the wrong direction in diplomatic negotiations. I think that um, if that were exposed at the time, it would be a massive scandal. People would resign. This was con still, despite everything that had changed in like the social norms uh, of the British gentry, would still be seen as ungentlemanly. Mm -hmm. at that time um so it would have been pretty scandalous uh, yeah. so that that's an example judging them by their own standards yeah all right let me get to the second part of the question uh can you elaborate uh and also Taufik Haddad uh can you elaborate on what your research says about Brit how British spies uh cultivated and manipulated the Palestinians uh, slash Arab leadership more um, it depends kind of where and what we're talking about. So if we're looking at the British, the, the government's relationship with the Mufti, of course, there would be, Hadramin would not have that job without a kind of irregular appointment by the British. He was unqualified. He didn't finish university. I don't even know if he had a high school diploma. Um, I, haven't, I haven't found any evidence of that. Um, so totally unqualified for kind of the chief jurisprudential arbiter in Jerusalem, right? Um, the, so he, he's an imposition and so are the other offices that he got. That um, doesn't mean he's not a good nationalist and he's not looking out for the national interest. In fact, that, I think his care for the national interest was the reason why he had such a broad base of support. In terms of other leaders, the British, after a lot of reluctance, get involved with with the defense party, Hezbollah Dufa, uh, uh, beginning in 1935-ish, um, when actually when they worked together to slander Hajimin and Shikib Arslan. And this is the, kind of the beginning of a, of a relationship where kind of the defeated, the vanquished parties 
uh, is working closely with the government uh, basically uh, to get back at, at um, Hajimin, but yeah. All right. Uh, okay, we, we, we have a bunch more questions coming in. We'll get through as many as we can. Uh, the, this is uh, from Peter Wallace. Uh, His question is, did the U.S. share intelligence with the U.S. and was this passed to the Zionists? And if I could add to that, like with, of course, the French as well, sitting just to their north in the, in the, the, the British share intelligence with Americans? Yeah. The French. Okay. So yeah, actually, one of the kind of common narratives about British Empire is their hostility to the French, especially in this region. And all I found was evidence of cooperation. Doesn't mean they always trust or like each other, but actually, and they have questions for each other. They get answers to queries, like honest answers to queries, generally speaking. Doesn't mean there's not a rivalry. Doesn't mean they don't really get at each other's throats in the uh, during and just after the Second World War, but um, in the end, the broad pattern I think is cooperative um, until the French are kicked out. Uh, <laughs> and with the Americans, it depends on the topic. So the American consulate is actually a great source of information about like impartial information about what's going on because they're talking to everybody uh, including Zionist dissidents. So one of the most interesting things I found was evidence of uh, Chaim Kalvariski, uh, who I mentioned in the book several times. He was an old intelligence hand for the Zionists, actually offered to pass a Jewish agency code book to the British via the Americans. Um, and at a, very, at a very critical time. The British share any uh, wartime kind of material with the Americans. The American consulate is also uh, willing to act as a courier for the Zionists. So they'll use a diplomatic bag so that Zionists can send messages to their offices in Istanbul, for example, uh, without the British seeing them. So there is this kind of um, more to be told about the dynamics of that relationship. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's get to one here on Zoom. And I apologize for pronunciation here. Uh, Aliaskar Barmal um, asks, <laughs> uh, so, so do you think that British decolonization plays into the hands of the Palestine-Israeli conflict like India and Pakistan? in that sense, uh, because the Israelis got the resources from the British to win the major wars, uh, such as in 1941, leaving the Palestinians vulnerable and not able to advance. So without these resources and intelligence, the Zionists would not have been able to achieve what they were able to in terms of uh, resources, and, you know, military and lands. Right. Would, you, would you agree with that assertion? Generally, yeah. I mean, without this kind of secret cooperation, yeah. I mean, some of I mean, this is Zionist secret weapon. Um, Leila Parsons' book on Fazil Kukchi illustrates this perfectly in the chapter on the 1947-48, uh, on the 1948 war, sorry. Um, mm -hmm. Right, the scene where the Zionists, are, the, the uh, Palestinian commander realizes in his reports to Kukchi that their codes are being cracked by the Zionists mm -hmm. and that they, they, he can't communicate with him and he's kind of gone silent for, during, in the middle of a battle. 
This totally shows the disparity in capability between the two sides. This is a very important skill that the Zionists could learn from volunteering in the British Army uh, as their own unit um, and passing and disseminating that in information internally. Um, the, like the cutting edge in, in tactics actually is something that uh, the Palestinians wake up to in the middle of the war, which is mm. too late, you know? Okay, I've been told we have time for two more questions. Uh, so uh, the first comes from Dr. Salman Abu Sitta, uh, and he makes a statement that uh, you will uh, agree with or disagree with. Uh, Britain decimated Palestinian society uh, 1936 to 1939, um, he notes. Uh, therefore, 1939 is the British inflicted Nakba. You agree? Uh, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, uh, I mean, just looking at, so um, my next project is going to deal with this a lot more, but the British set up a system of detention, again, without habeas corpus, that totally destroys any possibility of Palestinian self-government. Because for one thing, it turns Palestinians against one another. It turns their personal interests against the national interest. So people are like elites in particular who are sitting in open air prisons are basically offered the following. You can come join the government, join our jobocracy as the British privately called it um, and get out of here. Or you can sit here for the sake of the national interests, and a lot of people do what makes sense for their families and, and give up. Uh, Matthew Hughes, my colleague at Brunel, has also a book on the revolt, uh, described in brutal detail uh, the, the the price Palestinians pay for for the army's repression. Uh, so there's no there's no skirting around it. And uh, yeah, I think I think uh, Salman, that's a very fair statement. Okay, uh, yeah, another question, uh, let's see, coming in here, Martin Jarrett, uh, and this is something I think you go into your book a lot. He says, uh, in other parts of the British Empire, such as Aden, there was a lack of coordinated intelligence and suffered, suffered a multiplication of intelligence organization that didn't coordinate well. Uh, how was this avoided in Palestine? It wasn't. <laughs> so that's the short answer, is that it wasn't. Um, they solved the problem during the revolt because it's a crisis, Here's one of those things where my mind is, was changed a lot. Um, you British intelligence staffs, military intelligence staff, start coordinating between services, which was unusual at the time to have RAF and army officers and uh, officers from the Navy kind of work together in the same room and the same staff on the same problems. It was unusual, but it was considered uh, by people in the Second World War as the model for how to fight the war. So they refer to this experiment in Palestine as being the way to do things the right way, especially in the Middle East, because Wavell goes from GOC Palestine to Commander-in-Chief Middle East during the war, right? Um, and in that sense, you, you see some solutions to this kind of problem of coordinating intelligence. Um, but again, the price that Palestinians pay is rather severe, actually. Because um, again, these are the people who authorize all the fortress construction, fences, roads, and yeah. All right, well, let me uh, take the, my, um, uh, my prerogative as chair to ask one uh, wrap-up question. Uh, and now I teach, when I teach Mandate Palestine, I usually teach it as part of a modern Middle Eastern history class, and I get to 
talk about it in maybe one class. And I talk about it in the sense that the, the British were sort of uh, creating, uh, or they were a referee in a situation that was impossible, that they had partly created themselves. Um, and that's the grander narrative. Uh, but th these are the, con the contradiction that you're talking, you talk about in the book. Um, based on your book and your research, uh, what should I add to my one day of mandate Palestine class uh, what what would you what would you push me to make sure is in there when I'm talking about this in a more big picture way? The biggest big picture thing I would suggest is including something about uh, Saudi influence over the white paper because it's a not just a big revision of uh, story of the mandate, but also like Middle Eastern history, uh, history of the British Empire, history of the Second World War, uh, diplomatic history, right? We don't, we still in diplomatic history don't tend to consult diplomatic intelligence, even though it's so good. You have like a full account of Arab state diplomacy that no one uses. Um, mm. So I, I would, uh, I would definitely uh, emphasize um, that point, especially because okay. also the, the, the price European Jews pay for the white paper, I think, confounds a lot of people and, and yeah. didn't need for a long time. So, all right. Well, uh, I want to, yeah, I'm going to turn it over to Carol Palmer here, but thank you so much, Dr. Wagner. And uh, thank you to our audience. Great questions, really. Uh, thank you so really much. Sort of very, I mean, I apologize we couldn't get to everyone's questions. Hmm. Okay. So, um, thank you very much, uh, both of you, for the great presentation and great question and questions both from Andrew and from our audience. Um, we know there were a lot more coming in. We, we're sorry we couldn't get to, get to them all. Um, there's a lot of excellent scholarship coming out on the mandate um, and CBRL has been running some events. I mentioned them. Those who are in the Zoom, we will send you some of the links to some of those uh, podcasts and uh, and, and YouTube so that you can see them there. What I would also like to mention is uh, CBRL's journal Contemporary Levant uh, published a special issue last year on the mandate, the British mandate in Palestine, new histories, new historical agents and reframing old, par pa old paradigms, uh, including uh, some articles by some very familiar people who've been both in our audience <laughs> And, uh, and Andrew is interviewed there as well. Uh, we're arranging for that to be um, open access for, for a while during the summer. So we'll also make that available. Um, and just to, yes, um, thank you everybody. Thanks to our speakers again. Um, and thank you for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed the event. Uh, please do look at our website for future webinars on the Levant, um, a wide range of, of lectures that are available. Um, we've got another couple coming up in, um, in June as well. Um, so what I would also like to say is uh, please support us by either joining our mailing list or becoming a member as well. We're a membership society too. And uh, stay in touch. So thank you very much all once again and, uh, and bye for this evening. From Amand. Masalami. Masalami. <laughs>